0: Tschüss. To...
1: To St. James Lutheran Church for our final uh, Lent midweek service of 2020. Uh, next week we won't be having a service on Wednesday night, but we will be back uh, Thursday evening uh, for Monday, Thursday, and uh, Friday evening as well uh, for Good Friday service. Those services will both be at 7 o'clock p.m., and you can watch it where you're watching it right now. And then, of course, next Sunday morning, 9 o'clock <clears throat> a.m. Uh, for Easter Sunday worship. So uh, please come back and join us for those services as well. Let's begin tonight. The Lord Almighty grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. Amen. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to herald your love in the morning, your truth at the close of the day. And now let's pray together this prayer of confession. If you have the service in front of you, you can pray it out loud with me if you'd like. And if not, uh, pray along in your heart. Let's ask God to forgive our sins. Holy and gracious God, I confess that I have sinned against You this day. Some of my sin I know, the thoughts and words and deeds of which I am ashamed. But some is known only to You. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask forgiveness. Deliver and restore me that I may rest in peace. By the mercy of God, we are redeemed by Jesus Christ. And in him, we are forgiven. We rest now in his peace and rise in the morning to serve him. Amen. Of the psalm reading for tonight, uh, penitential psalm, Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste place. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked down at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Epistle reading is from Hebrews chapter 1. And the writer of Hebrews is going to quote a lot of different passages from the Old Testament here to make a point about Jesus. And so I'm going to try to explain that as we go along here. And it will have a bearing on uh, the sermon upcoming. This is the very, very first part of Hebrews. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And now he's going to quote a bunch of Old Testament texts to demonstrate from the Old Testament that the coming one, that Jesus, is greater than angels. Angels are the most powerful created beings that humans would have known. Jesus, of course, is another human, and so uh, to the eyes of the flesh, he just looks like another guy. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, he's actually much more than that. He's actually a grade above the angels. Quoting Psalm chapter 2, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. God never called any of his angels his son, but Jesus, he did at his baptism, said, This is my beloved son. Or again, and he quotes 2 Samuel 7 here, that classic text where God promises to David that you and your son are going to sit on my throne forever. He says, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God never said that to any of the angels, but he did say it to David's son, Jesus. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and the firstborn, he's talking about Jesus. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him, Is a quote from Deuteronomy 32. God commanding all of his angels to worship Jesus. Of all the, of the angels, he says, in Psalm 104, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. His angels are servants of his, but Jesus is his son. But of the son, he says, and now he quotes Psalm 45. And this is kind of, a, this is a little bit, uh, there's a little bit of logic here, so, so lock in and pay attention. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God's throne is forever and ever, the psalmist says in Psalm 45. The scepter of of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, God. So God has a kingdom. He sits on the throne. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, the Hebrew word behind anointed there is the word Messiah. So who's he talking to here? Is he talking to God? Well, it says your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Or is he talking to the Messiah? Well, he says, God has anointed you. So clearly he's talking to both. With the oil of gladness, you've been anointed beyond your companions. The main point of the writer here is this, is that God and the Messiah are going to be the same person. It's a person much greater than any other human, much greater even than the angels. This is the creator God himself ruling as a human. And then finally, he quotes from our chapter, Psalm 102. He says this, and and I'm not going to break this down right now. We'll get to it in just a minute in the sermon. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. This is from verses 25 through 28 of our psalm reading. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Remember back just a few verses in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, I think. He said that Jesus is the one through whom God, through Jesus, created the world. That's what the psalmist is saying. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. We'll come back to that Hebrew reading in just a few minutes. Right now, though, let's go back to Psalm 102 and talk about this um, fifth of the six penitential psalms. Whenever I started studying these, I, was, I, I went into this at the beginning of Lent thinking that this was largely going to be about sin and the forgiveness of sin. And of course, if you've been with us every Wednesday night, you'll know that there's been a lot of that in there. But the thing that binds all of these psalms together, is there's different reasons why the psalmist is crying out for help in each one of these psalms, frequently like in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51. The primary reason is sin, sin that they feel guilty or, or sin that they know that they're guilty over, whether they feel it or not although they do feel it, and they need God to forgive them. But one thing that binds all of these psalms together is the emotional response of the psalmist. These psalms have described in vivid, almost contemporary detail, these, these could be articles in psychology today, what it looks like to grapple with depression. And we see the same thing here in Psalm 102. But there's different reasons here, a little bit different. So there's some overlap with some of the previous psalms of um, um, Uh, penitential psalms that we've looked at. Uh, But I want to point out that there's one thing that Psalm 102 adds that the others didn't, and we'll get to that in just a second. But let me point out to you first before we get there, in in verses 3 through 11 of Psalm 102, the psalmist gives three different reasons why the psalmist is complaining. I don't mean complaining in a negative sense, why the psalmist is crying out to the Lord for help, God save me. There's a first-person reason. I have a problem with me, the psalmist says. There's a third person reason. I have a problem with them over there. And then there's a second person reason as well. God, I have a problem with you. So the psalmist has a problem with himself, with God, and with other people too. Verses 3 through 5, the problem he has with himself. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh." The psalmist has, and this is, uh, I'll do this quickly because there's a lot of overlap here uh, with what we've talked about before. The psalmist has physical symptoms. The psalmist has, my bones are heating up, he says. My bones burn like a furnace. My flesh clings to my bones. There's this image of fever, of wasting away, of a gradual onset of a sickness, a debilitating sickness that's causing this depression. There's also a depression in here. My heart is struck down, verse 4, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. My heart is like it's, my, my heart is withering like grass in the hot sun that hasn't had water. It's just slowly dying away. I forget to eat my bread. Some of you who struggle with depression will know that this is the case, is that the pain is so bad that sometimes you'll just forget to eat. You won't even think about eating. Food won't even be on your radar screen. The psalmist here has a personal problem, a struggle of some sort, physical and emotional, psychological. He also has a they problem, a third-person problem. Look at verses 6 through 8. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. People have turned their back on me. They're taunting me. They use my name as a curse. How much worse can it get, right? And so I'm, I've been abandoned. I'm on my own. I'm like an owl uses the, uh, 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 a nocturnal animal here, like an owl up at night all by himself, like a bird sitting on a roof all by itself. I'm completely alone. That, that, night, that night animal imagery is important too. Verse 7, the first line, I lie awake You'll know, too, that if you've struggled with depression, if you've been abandoned by somebody, if you've had people turn against you and you struggle with depression, that falling asleep is sometimes impossible. And when you can sleep, it's it's a luxury. And so the psalmist, like he said in Psalm 32 as well, like, I can't sleep. I'm up all night. I can't fall asleep. I lie awake because of them, because of my third-person problem. But he also has a second-person problem. He has a problem with God as well. Look at verse 9. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because, God, of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. It's like a, a, a wild animal killing another animal, tossing it up in the air and throwing it down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Let me say two, th- two, th- two things here about God's anger. Frequently those of us uh, from the Reformation tradition We'll think of, we'll, when somebody says to us, is God angry with me? Or we think the thought in our head, maybe God's angry with me. That's why bad stuff is happening. Uh, we almost instantly, and rightly so, say, no, that's not the case. God has already expended all his anger on his son. God's wrath was satisfied when Jesus died on the cross for us. It's not possible for him to be angry with us. That's true. However, it's also the case that God hates sin. And as a result, God goes out of his way to make sure that the lives of sin that we lead aren't happy, aren't successful. And it's also appropriate to think in terms, when bad stuff does happen, I'm not saying that it's a punishment for any individual sin or any individual sin, but like I said a few weeks ago, because we live in a broken world, a world broken by our own sin, sometimes It's appropriate to think of this brokenness in terms of God's indignation. And that's what the psalmist says, because you are angry with me, because of your indignation and anger. I read in Sunday morning a few weeks ago uh, a letter uh, that uh, Martin Luther wrote to a friend of his named John Hess uh, telling him, this is what you should do if the plague comes to your town. This is in the 1520s in Germany, and the plague was moving from east to west across Germany And I didn't read this to the congregation, but at the beginning of the letter, he's writing to John and apologizing for taking so long to have written back. And he says this, let me read this to you. He says, I should have answered you long ago, but God has for some time disciplined and scourged me so severely that I've been unable to do much reading or writing. We know that just right before he answered this letter, Luther had the first attack in what was going to be a lifelong struggle with a certain physical illness that Of course, we don't really uh, know exactly what the physical illness was. There's some good guesses. But it involved some sort of massive ringing in his ear, his left ear. He could hardly think straight it was so loud. He said at one point, I can't talk, I can't listen, I can't read, I can't think because of the buzzing and roaring in my head all the time. It caused him an intense amount of pain and discomfort. Another of the symptoms was tons of dizziness, lots of vertigo, lightheadedness, rapid heartbeats, Uh, he was uh, frequently crumpled in pain, frequently worn out and tired. He struggled with this for the rest of his life. And when he writes this letter to John Hess, he doesn't say, well, this is random sort of biological event that's happening to me. He also doesn't say, I've sinned against God, and this was my sin, and now God is punishing this specific sin. But he does recognize that one of the things that's going on when bad stuff happens to us is God is judging The broken world that we broke. And so he says, God has disciplined and scourged me. He doesn't think of it in terms of punishment. He thinks of it in terms of discipline. But it's definitely God behind it. Now, here in Psalm 103, the main discipline that happens is death. God is eventually, like I said on Ash Wednesday, God is eventually going to kill all of us. He told us in the Garden of Eden, if you sin against me, you will die. And we sinned against him. And now it's the lot of every single one of us to die. And the psalmist in this psalm is grappling seriously with his mortality, with his approaching death. Check out, this line, check out these lines in verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. You get that, right? I mean, so during the day, you have a shadow and it's well-defined. The sun's at your back and you can see your well-defined shadow. But as the day drags on, the shadow lengthens out. And in the evening, your shadow stretches out and becomes thinner and thinner. Until it's swallowed up by the encroaching night, and the psalmist says, "That's what our lives are like." You can almost see it fading away, turning into black nothingness. I wither away like grass. That's the second time he's used that imagery of grass dying in the heat. This is what our lives are like. My days, verse five, he says, "This my days." Or I'm sorry, verse three, "My days pass away like smoke." This is what's. This is I told you at the beginning. This is something that's been added here to this petitionary, not petitionary, uh, this psalm of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, penitential psalm. Uh, This is something that's been added, this fear of death, the fear that my days are going to end. And verse 3 says, my days pass away like smoke. I just read verse 11 to you. We go over to verse 23. It says, God has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. There's this knowledge that I'm dying. Every day I live is one day closer to my death. How are we going to grapple with this? A lot of us, this is, a a, one way you can do it is to stick your head in the sand and be naive, right? You could pretend like you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. That's a certain sort of ignorant way to deal with the problem of death. The other way seems equally as uncomfortable. Certain sort of morbidity to thinking about the fact that you're going to die. doesn't seem like that would be something that you'd want to do. If you are struggling with that, though, Psalm 103 is for you. If you're not and you have your head in the sand and you feel like you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof, you do need to think about this. The thing about change is, the thing about the the change of mortality, think about how often it sneaks up on you unannounced. Death hardly ever shows up and says, "Uh, you're going to get yours in three days' time. More frequently than not, it's unaware And even when you kind of can guess it's going to happen, it's still a shock. It's still a bad, bad surprise. And it's always hanging back there. My my daughters and I are reading through, uh, we just started The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book in The Lord of the Rings. And it starts off with the main character living in the shire, and he finds out that there's this encroaching evil that's come to take over the whole world. But all of his friends there in the shire don't know anything about it. It's somewhere out there, right? It's like the, uh, the people who uh, woke up to that pleasant Sunday morning uh, when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Uh, you just kind of go about your day and just assume everything's going to be nice and normal. And then it's not. You're the, in, in, the, in the shire, they're mowing their yard. They're having dinners. They're having conversations with their friend, not aware of the evil that's bearing down upon them. I saw a friend of mine uh, a couple days ago, and uh, he uh, was telling me about how uh, crazy this. Uh, everybody's overreacting to this coronavirus thing. and I, I don't know. He may be right. Uh, I don't know enough. But it would be like death, wouldn't it? It would be like uh, the people standing on a pleasant beach when there's a tsunami uh, just on the other side of the horizon about to take their lives and destroy their city but to be sitting on the beach playing volleyball and building sandcastles and swimming a little bit. It would be like this sickness to be hanging around and we're all walking around here thinking, the weather's good, I'm healthy, my friends are healthy. This is the way death is. And the sooner that we grapple with it in the way that the psalmist is in Psalm 103, the sooner we can come to grips with a God who actually has the solution to it. Not a dig your head in the sand solution, but a real solution. So let's talk for just a couple minutes here. About a solution, and like I've been saying with the penitential psalms here, there's no real technique to to uh, getting over a depression. There's really no list of rules that will help you suddenly feel great about life. But there are some principles here. There's a ton of them. I'm just going to give you three of them, if that's okay. And the first one is this: God is the master of time. We don't know about our times. We don't know when the shadow of our lives will lengthen out and disappear into darkness. But we do know that the God who created time is in charge of it. Look at verse 13. You will arise, God, and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. What's the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying that when God decides to act, it will be because God has appointed that time to act. God has planned out the future. He's appointed times. And when the time for him to act comes, he'll act. The best way to think of it, I think, is that God is writing a story, a fantastic story. It's not a, its not a, 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 an easy story, but because of that, it's not a boring story. Lots of bad stuff happens to the main character. Lots of bad stuff happens to me and you, the ancillary characters, things that we don't like, things that are uncomfortable. But it just makes the story the more dramatic, and it makes it end well. To say that God has appointed the times that God is writing out this story is only going to be comfort for you if you actually believe that God is good. I just finished reading a book about the wars of the roses in England. It's an interesting thing about the kings of England in the 15th century. They would overthrow the, the king who was tenuously sitting on the throne. They would throw them in the Tower of London, and then they would treat them magnificently. They would give them all kinds of great food. They would buy super nice clothes for them, and then they would kill them. It's kind of a weird thing. Well, they wanted the person to be calm and don't try to revolt, and so they would bribe them with good things. And then eventually they would find out that he's got friends on the outside who are going to try to get him out. And the best way the the, the, the current king would think to deal with that problem would be to off the king who was sitting in the tower. Well, sometimes maybe it feels like that's the way life is to us. It's a series of good things that are happening to us. Maybe God is just setting us up, giving us some nice clothes. nice. But really, he's planning on next week to kill us. The story of Psalm 103, though, is the story of the Bible. God is planning good things for his people. Let me read to you a a few of these things. In verse 15, he says this, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. The nations are going to turn to the Lord. This is a great thing. The story ends with people coming to God and worshiping him. Verse 19, God looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. God loves us. He loves His people. His plan involves our liberation, our deliverance from sin and from sickness and from death. Last, very last verse of this psalm, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. God's plan is to establish His people forever and ever because God is in charge of time. However bad things look, God has a plan and he's going to accomplish his plan. Second thing, God is creating a people, a people who will exist across time. We are limited in a certain sense. We have a certain amount of time on this earth. We're going to live, we're born, we're going to live, we're going to die. But the Church of Jesus Christ goes on and on and on, and we will always be a part of it from here on out, even after we die and our bodies go into the ground will be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. Let this be recorded. Let the great things that God is doing to, for us, the great things that, that God has planned for us, let these be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The things that God is doing for us, write them down, remember them, tell them to people, tell them to your kids. Why? Because there's a generation who hasn't even been born yet who will look Look back on us after we're gone and say, God, is treated, God treated them with grace and with glory, and he's going to do the same thing for us. I was talking to somebody recently who mentioned that one of their favorite things about Holy Communion is right before communion when we all sing the Sanctus together. We sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We say in the prayer that now we're going to sing the Sanctus, but it's not just us here in this room. It's us with all the angels It's us with all the saints all over the world right now. And it's us with all the saints who have ever lived. You and I will always be a part of that stream now. Our lives are temporary, but we're part of something eternal, the body of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is kind of like last Sunday's sermon. You see this in the psalm. It starts off with an individual concern. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. My days pass away like smoke. All the day, my enemies taunt me. But by the time you get to the turn at verse 12, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It's God's people who are redeemed. Our concerns are individual, but God's grace and God's salvation is universal. It's communal. God is saving a people that we now get to be a part of. Last thing, and I'll make this quick. Everything changes. One of the things that scares us about death is that It's different. It's a change, and moving towards death is a change. We're scared of that for ourselves. We're scared of the sickness that brings on death. We're scared of the old age that brings on death. We're scared of the accident that might bring on death. For others, too, we're scared of living without somebody. Everything changes, and we're scared of this temporal nature of all things. But the good news is is that, that we change, our circumstances change, our relationships change, the people around us change, God stays the same forever and ever. Verse 23 says this, God's broken my strength in midcourse. He's shortened my days. Oh my God, I said, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. What's the solution to this fear of death? Verse 25, of old, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain God. We're temporary, but you are eternal. That brings us to the Hebrew reading. It's kind of an interesting thing that the writer of Hebrews um, he's going on talking about how Jesus is different than the angels, how Jesus is the greatest of all time because he's the creator of everything. And then he says, "This, you Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands." Now, it's not super clear here in Hebrews, although if you were reading the Greek version of the Old Testament, it would be very, very apparent that God is talking to God. You, Lord, the, that it's God who's talking here, but he's saying, you, Lord, he's talking to, it's the Lord talking to the Lord. It's Yahweh talking to Yahweh. It's the Creator God talking to Jesus. Can we say Jesus? That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens, Jesus, are the work of your hands. They will perish, but Jesus, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, Jesus will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But Jesus is the same, and his years will have no end. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? Simply this. We're scared of change. We're scared of death. We're scared of sicknesses. Jesus came, the imminent, the, 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 the transcendent one became the imminent one. The eternal vast one became the right here, right now one. The eternal one became the temporary one took upon himself the temporary nature of the human body the temporary nature of human relationships so that he by the power of it, by the power of eternity the one who created everything from the very beginning could do away with the temporal and make it eternal what did jesus do for us think of it like this by dying on the cro- by, by dying on the cross and by rising from the dead so let me say it this way we frequently think of life as the temporary thing there's a period of time And then death is going to be forever. But what Jesus does by dying and rising from the dead is he makes death the temporary thing and life the eternal thing. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for always being a good God to us. We thank you for taking care of us. We thank you in advance for delivering us from our sicknesses. We thank you in advance for delivering us from our depressions. We thank you in advance for delivering us from our broken relationships. We thank you in advance for delivering us from death. By uniting us to your Son, Jesus, who rose from the dead, you make our life an eternal life. The things that we're scared of, the change that we're scared of, is all done away in Jesus. And he will make all things new. And so we praise you for that. We pray, Lord, as... Uh, This uh, coronavirus seems to be ramping up and getting more intense here as the cases here in our home county are increasing every day. We pray that you would defend us from that, that you would give healing, uh, renewed strength to those who are struggling with this, that you would keep it from being passed on, Father. If any of us are carrying carrying this around asymptomatically, unawares, please keep us from passing it on to people who would be vulnerable to it. Father, I just want to pray also that you would bring us all back together again soon. I miss my brothers and sisters. I miss worshiping with them. I miss hearing them sing. I miss talking to them. I miss reading the Scripture and praying together. Bring us all back together soon. Do this for your own name's sake. Do it for your own honor and glory. And when you do it, Father, may we say that you are the one who delivered us from this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry. Keep me as the apple of Your eye. Hide me in the shadow of Your wings. In righteousness I shall see You. When I awake, Your presence will give me joy. Be present, merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of life may find our rest in You. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you and keep you. Amen.